Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the writings of the prophets. And here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John will be discussing the first portion of Daniel chapter 3. We do want to highlight some events that we have coming up that may be in your area. We have a regional course on how we should worship this weekend in Cary, North Carolina. That's April 23rd and 24th, 2021. Our intensive course here in Birmingham, Alabama will be from May 10th through May 13th, and that'll be on the Christian Art of Dying with Dr. Kimball Cornu. And finally, we wanted to highlight the Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which will be here in Birmingham as well, on July 19th and July 20th. This will be the inaugural Theopolitan Ministry Conference, where we will learn from Scripture and address such issues as the fracturing of American evangelicalism, the challenges of church planting, and the demands of pastoral leadership. Speakers at that conference will include Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, several Theopolis Fellows, and more. You can find links and more information for all of these events in the show notes, and we look forward to seeing you soon. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Jeff Myers, who usually joins us with the podcast, is at a presbytery meeting today, so he won't be joining us. Brian Motes, as usual, is running the recording. Thank you for joining us, and we appreciate your interest in Theopolis and particularly in our podcast. We're in the middle of a series on prophetic literature. We started out with a an episode or two on prophecy in general, and then we covered the book of Jonah over several weeks. And uh, a few weeks ago, we started the book of Daniel. We're taking our time through the book of Daniel. We, we had some introductory work on Daniel and have covered the first two chapters over the last month and a half or so. And that brings us to Daniel chapter three, of course. And uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks here in Daniel three, uh, which is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's image and the response of the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the king's decree. And uh, just to set the set the context, this is repeating things that we've talked about before, but the section that we're in in Daniel is an Aramaic section. The first chapter uh, and a couple of verses of Daniel are written in Hebrew, and then chapters 8 through 12 are also written in Hebrew. But within that uh, that uh, book, those bookends of Hebrew, we have chapters 2 through 7 that are written in Aramaic. And uh, we've pointed out before that those chapters match up nicely as a chiasti- in a chiastic structure. Chapter 2, uh, which is about the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the four materials of the statue that he saw representing four empires. That's what we looked at over the last couple of weeks. That matches up with chapter 7, a vision of Daniel when he sees four, four beasts coming up out of the sea. And those also represent four empires. Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone crush the statue that represents these empires, and the stone grinds them to powder and then grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's an image of the coming of the kingdom of God. And in chapter 7, we have uh, the same events, the same transition from empires to the empire of God, but imaged differently. Instead of having a stone, we have one like the Son of Man who ascends to receive all the dominion and authority and power that had belonged to the bestial empire. So two and seven match up. Uh, three and six match up. I'll come back to that. And then four and five match up because both of them have to do, or both one of them is about Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's 
humiliation. And then uh, chapter five uh, makes reference to that. But chapter three makes a neat parallel with chapter six. It anticipates chapter six. Uh, we have different characters. Nebuchadnezzar and the three friends of Daniel are the principal characters. They're named characters in chapter three. And in chapter six, we have Daniel is the principal Jewish character. And instead of having a Nebuchadnezzar or a Babylonian king, uh, by that time, the Persians have taken over Babylon and Daniel is living under the Persians and he's dealing with a king that's named Darius or Darius. But apart from those uh, uh, those differences, we have a very similar kind of setup. We have a king's decree that involves worship of something other than the true and living God. That decree is backed up in both cases by a threat of death, uh, the fiery furnace in the one case and the den of lions in the other. Uh, in both cases, we have Jews who defy the king's decree, who refuse to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to refuse to bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Uh, and Daniel, of course, is going to refuse to stop praying. He's going to pray to his God rather than to Darius. So we have a defiance of the king, uh, which leads to the execution of the punishment. But in both cases, the Lord delivers his faithful people from from death. So we have that uh, par- those uh, basics, basic narrative parallels in chapters three and six that make these um, companion chapters both about uh, Jews defying idolatrous decrees of Gentile kings. Uh, chapter three is also uh, part of the development of Neb- Nebuchadnezzar. We, we noted this, uh, in, I think, in the last couple of episodes. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledges Daniel's God as a God who reveals mysteries at the end of chapter two after his dream and after Daniel interprets his dream. At the end of chapter three, he's going to uh, make a decree concerning the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and then chapter four is entirely focused on Nebuchadnezzar and about his own personal experience. So we have this increasing focus on Nebuchadnezzar, the king, as a person, not just as the king of the of the Babylonian Empire, but also as an individual human being. One, one signal of that is the increasing number of uses that we have of Nebuchadnezzar's personal name. His name is used uh, fairly infrequently in the first couple of chapters. He's just called the king. Uh, but in chapters three and four, we have his personal name coming to prom- prominence. And he actually, in chapter four, he's writing something in the first person. So we have that development too going on in the first half of, of this Aramaic section. The Lord is dealing not just with the empire and the Jews within the empire, but he's dealing through the Jews that are in the empire with Nebuchadnezzar himself and bringing him to a confession of God's uh, of God's sovereignty over his, over his kingdom. In chapter two, we heard of a dream with a great um, figure that was set up with three different forms of metal with Babylon being connected with the gold and the head. And here it seems as if we should be reading this particular account over against that, that Nebuchadnezzar is in some way establishing this almost in response to the dream. It is, again, it's a statue or a figure that this time is entirely of gold or presumably gold-plated and representing almost a response to the threat that that dream may represent of the kingdom being lost to other successive um, successor kingdoms. And reading the two together, I think also we can maybe see something of the theme that has been in the background of the book in a number of different ways of this is the plane of 
Shinar. This particular episode occurs on the plain of Jura, but more generally, this is the context of Babel. And there is an attempt to join people together in a common act of worship and under a common and um, political system, which harkens back to the events of chapter 11 of Genesis. And in many of the different ways, I think, we're seeing a development of this particular theme and the appropriate response of the Jews to this um, idolatrous and um, hubristic attempt to establish this one world system. To pick up on the first of those points, Alistair, the transition to silver in terms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is precisely what signifies the fall of Babylon, really, isn't it? Because it's replaced by the next empire in the sequence, the Medo-Persians. And so this is very much a, an image of defiance, isn't it? A statement of Babylon forever, basically. It reminds me of the um, statement made by Babylon in Isaiah 75, I will remain a queen forever. Never will I know the loss of my children. It's, it's this kind of national chant of a, in a sense, isn't it? And I think that that might go some way towards explaining why Nebuchadnezzar is, is so intent on getting everyone to bow before and acknowledge this thing. Because, you know, the threat was part of a, a dream. Um, this is now, I guess, a statement of Nebuchadnezzar's intent, which he's starting to actualize. And presumably a large part of that is then getting other people to um, acknowledge the future which he wants to decree and, and set out. And I think that's part of the reason why he requires everyone to bow before it. it it's a kind of, you know, it, it's not just a, a desire for worship. It's to get the whole kingdom to acknowledge the unity and the kind of eternality of, of Babylon. Yeah, I think that's a great point, James. I, and I think that you think about the, you said that you started out saying the silver is a sign of Babylon's fall. And in chapter two, Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar himself as the head of gold, which may, it makes it seem like once Nebuchadnezzar is out of the way, then Babylon itself is over. He's he's the one representative of Babylon. So there's an even more kind of intense feeling of anxiety and need to shore up, you shore up against that threat. Uh, I wonder though, uh, I mean, uh, are, are you talking about threats coming from kind of the sovereign God who's orchestrating the rise and fall of nations? Is that the kind of threat that Nebuchadnezzar is responding to? Or is there something more imminent? Does he does he discern a rebellious uh, a rebellions within his own empire? It's, you know, maybe this could connect to chapter two. He's really angry with the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the magicians when they try to they try to get him to tell them the dream. He says they're buying time. Does he see some kind of uh, some kind of rebellious uh, rumblings going on within his own kingdom? Is that is that part of the motivation? Do you think? I think so, in large part because that Colossus of chapter two does actually have the seeds of division within it. It crumbles or it starts to weaken, at least from the outs uh, from the inside before it's attacked from from the outside, which is, I guess, the way in which most empires in history fall. Um, something I've been helped by as I've gone through James Jordan's commentary is the way in which he wants to find. Um, immediate fulfillments to a lot of the prophetic visions. And um, I think we can probably see 
something of the crumbling of the Colossus, as you've highlighted, Peter, even in chapter two. So there is, it seems, uh, you know, vast and indomitable Persian, uh, Babylonian empire. And then Nebuchadnezzar has this dream which rattles him. And immediately it kind of causes conflict between the wise men and uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He he feels that they're uh, playing with him and and stringing him along and and so on. And um, they, it seems, kind of exclude Daniel from their ranks a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar in the context of the narrative I'm talking now, um, speaks initially in chapter two in Hebrew. And when they answer, they answer in Aramaic, which kind of serves to exclude Daniel a, a little mm-hmm. bit, you, you would think. They're talking to their king in in his own tongue. And these ranks now between um, Daniel and the Jews and um, the rest of the kingdom are, are opening up again in chapter three, aren't they? The, um, uh, the, the Jews here are always referred to as those those Jews. Um, it's not always translated um, like that, but it, it's, it's always like the, the, the distant pronoun mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, too. And um, it, it feels like these divisions are, are slowly opening up. The cracks are beginning to be widened in, in the empire. I wanted to return to Alistair's point about this uh, being an allusion to Babel. Uh, you have the the term plain that's used in uh, 3.1, the plain of Dura in this case, but it uh, echoes the plain of Shinar back in Genesis chapter 11. And um, instead of a tower, you have an, an immense image uh, that's set up on the plain so that uh, it it's not the same as the tower in the city that they were building, but it it's a, a an image in the province of Babylon. The word Dura is uh, uh, means wall, so this perhaps is a walled a walled region within the plain that uh, that's marked off as the uh, as the location for this for this image. But I think one of the one of the questions I'd uh, worth exploring is what 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 goes differently here. You have a kind of new Tower of Babel episode, but it uh, it doesn't have the same effect. There's a there's an an intervention from God, as it were, that will take place in chapter three not direct as it is in Genesis 11 but it doesn't it doesn't lead to the to the dissolution and the scattering of this empire uh, one of the things that I thought of as a as a contrast between these two episodes is the role of the Jews uh, uh, Jim Jordan has pointed out in Genesis 11 you have that the Babel project is not just a project of the descendants of Ham but it's a project of the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Shem uh, and you can at the end of chapter ten, you've got the Shemites that are on are journeying east, and then they get to Babel and they join with the Hamites in this project. That's a kind of they're not they're not Jews yet, but it's a Shemite Hamite joint project. But in this case, you have Jews who are going to be dissenters. They're not going to join in this uh, this new Babel project. Uh, and in some sense, that's what preserves Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar ends up acknowledging them at the end of the chapter. Uh, and it seems like that's that's the big that's the big anomaly here that makes it different from the from the Tower of Babel and you know the the fact that the Jewish witness has an effect on the king uh, that's something that happens over and over again in this post-exilic literature but that's that's a new thing I mean Moses didn't have any effect on Pharaoh when he went before Pharaoh but all the Jews who go before uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Darius or Ahasuerus or uh, the other kings in uh, the various exilic books. 
uh, they have a, an effect on the king, so they begin to govern differently and acknowledge God. So there seems that, uh, at least that a fairly dramatic contrast between the the uh, the role of the Shemites slash Jews in these two episodes. We could also perhaps think about the way in which the same tower-like image is developed later in the book. So in chapter four, we're going to see another tall structure um, with its head towards the clouds. Um, and when that falls, we do get this kind of scattering going on. It talks about how all the birds and the beasts, which were um, uh, given shelter by the tree, then go fleeing from it when the tree is cut down. And so I think perhaps putting it in that uh, wider light, we, we can make sense of what's going on as well. The um, the tower in the midst of the plain, the original Tower of Babel, was obviously deliberately to draw men towards it. It, it was to be this it was almost like a magnetic object. And while people had been told to populate the earth, this was acting as a kind of illegitimate centre of gravity against God's plans. And um, obviously, Babylon has that effect. Um, uh, it's not until Cyrus comes that he's going to start um, sending the Jews back to their uh, back to their homeland. As we go through the chapter, there is there are a series of different expressions that are repeated on several occasions, literally seven occasions in most cases. Things like um, you have the references to the different officials of of um, Babylon, the satraps, prefects, governors, councillors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. There are seven different groups. There are seven different types of musical instruments that are mentioned. There are a number of key formulaic expressions that are repeated at various points, things like the peoples, nations, and languages. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They occur on a number of occasions as well. And it seems to have an almost satirical flavor to it. It's marking almost the the degree to which this is going through a mindless ritual. And along with that, we're also seeing all these auspicious numbers, these numbers associated with perfection and completion and the um, the sevens and the sixes, the the six um, cubits of the breadth of the image and the 60 cubits, which would be important numbers for Babylonians. And yet it doesn't work. Um, it has all the pieces there, as it were, but it ends up looking rather foolish. And Nebuchadnezzar, by making this bold decree, actually ends up putting himself in a weaker position when he has to act in a way that he doesn't want to act at the end of it. And it seems more generally that this expression of hubris on the part of humankind ends up backfiring um, quite significantly. But from the very outset, we have indications that this is this is a brittle creation. This is not something that is promising great things rather it has all of the signs over it that it's going to it's all going to fail mm. yeah it, it's an interesting uh, i think an interestingly complex image uh, because in one in one sense you have nebuchadnezzar exercising kind of total control and that's that's emphasized to some degree by the repetition of that list that you mentioned alistair so in verse two nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble all these people verse three then they assembled you know the king just has to say a word and they all come together in the plain of Jura. 
the Herald proclaims that they should do this. And when that happens, everybody does exactly what the Herald has said. That's in verses four through seven. So you have this very strict command obedience kind of pattern going. And yet, as you say, the the repetition has a kind of satirical or or a comedic effect, especially I think in the second instance when the herald proclaims this, when this happens, when the instruments begin to play, then everyone should fall down. Therefore, when they heard the voice of the instruments, they all fell down. It's almost like a Pavlovian reaction. They, they, uh, they're uh, unthinkingly bowing to this image. So you, I think it, it's interesting that you, yeah, you have this, uh, you have the, the, the signs of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's weakness that are kind of embedded within uh, what looks on the surface like total power over his governors and all over all his administration and over all the people that he rules. To pick up on some of those ideas, its weakness is, in a sense, in the fact that it is an image held together by fear. The very fact that Nebuchadnezzar has got this death threat in the background of the whole thing is is quite interesting. It suggests that he almost expects dissent of some sort. Is he trying to flush out some sort of uh, rebellious root within his kingdom or, or something? It's, it's not clear, but right from the word go, there is the furnace in, in the background. And so it, it really is this kind of, it, it's not a an attempt to win over hearts and minds. You know, it's um, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care why these people bow down um, as, as long as they do. That, that's the main thing. And so there is this kind of, um, as I think Alistair said, like this fragility to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to a comment you made, James, that uh, I hadn't noticed this before. It's obvious once uh, once you alluded to it, but uh, every single one of the chapters concerning Nebuchadnezzar has some kind of tower image. You have the statue in chapter two, you have the huge image that he himself raises up in chapter three. Uh, then you have the tree in chapter four. And I'm, I'm I'm interested to think more about how the imagery shifts when you get to the second half of this after Nebuchadnezzar is out of the picture. Uh, you don't have those same kind of tower images. You've got Belshazzar's feast in chapter five. Uh, you've got uh, Darius and ordering people to pray and Daniel in the lion's den in chapter six, the vision of Daniel in chapter seven. And I wonder if some of the some of the deep imagery of uh, Daniel could be traced by looking at that transition from all of these kind of ladder to heaven images in the first half of this Aramaic section to uh, maybe images of depth, perhaps. I mean, you have a you have a lion's den in chapter six. You have the sea in chapter seven. I don't know exactly what's going uh, whether there's a common image, but it just struck me how consistent the tower images were in the first several chapters here. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. One of the, um, one of the things that seems to be happening here too, that we've been talking about the political motivations of this image and gathering all the administrators and all the people together, but it's obviously this, it's a liturgical event. It's a religious event with a political, with a political purpose or political overtones. And even the setting seems to have a kind of temple, uh, uh, temple allusions to it. You have this uh, a plain in Dura, perhaps a walled area within the plain with a with an image in it. I mean, in in ancient paganism, that's already a kind of temple setting when you have the image of something, whether it's the god or of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, set up as something as something to worship. You have a fire nearby, which suggests a kind of altar setting, 
and then uh, you have human beings are threatened that they're going to be thrown into the fire. And uh, in the event, the three friends are thrown into the fire. So you have this kind of sacrificial imagery that's uh, working. So the, the, the whole thing is kind of a false temple. Uh, and then again, I think that is a, a, a another kind of deep connection with what's going on in um, at the Tower of Babel, which is not just a civic project, but the tower that reaches to heaven is a, is a temple project. They, they're trying to build a building that connects heaven and earth. And it seems we have something similar, some similar aspiration going on here with Nebuchadnezzar. What do you make of the role of the music within the picture? It seems that that liturgical purpose of music Mm -hmm. as something that can unite separate tongues might be an attempt to reverse Babel in part. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the instruments are far more exotic than the instruments we get when Hebrew worship is described in say the Psalms or Chronicles or or books like that. And we could think later on perhaps about some of the different instruments used and some of the Greek words there. But it's almost as if that music is an attempt to cement together this mass of different people and nations and languages and unite them around this common theme, which is what Nebuchadnezzar obviously wants to do. It also, I guess, forms the backdrop in an ironic way for the Hebrews' action because what they do in not bowing before Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately an act of worship. It's an act of their worship to the God of heaven and their um, the worth which they uh, ascribe to him. And so all that seems to play into the, uh, the chapter. Yeah, that may be uh, reinforced by the repetition of a couple of key key verbs. The verb kum, which Hebrew is rise, raise up, but also here is translated usually as set up or stand. When the king sets up the image, he's raising it up, raising up the image. And then uh, at the playing of the music, there's people are supposed to fall before the image. So you have this this dynamic of a, of a raised image and falling people before it. But then you have the uh, later on in the chapter, the the three friends are going to stand before the king, and they're going to fall into the fire. So the last use of the verb fall is uh, describing them being tossed into the fiery furnace. So you have that the question of standing and falling: who's going to be raised up? Who's going to be put down? That uh, is connected with the with the with the liturgical with the liturgical actions. Seems to me that there are. A few key occasions in scripture where we have imagery imagery of a furnace apart from references to um, hell or um, Gehenna and other images like that. But we have the image of the iron furnace as Egypt. It's something we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in 1 Kings chapter 8, and then also I think it's somewhere in Jeremiah. Um, and then we have the kiln at the beginning of the story of Babel. It's the means by which they fire the the bricks. It's this new process that they've developed. And within later thought, there's this sort of elaboration of those images. Um, I think you see it in the Book of Jubilees and then later on in um, Jewish retellings of the story, Abraham being rescued from the fire. You have Israel being rescued from the iron furnace of Egypt. And now you have a new furnace. And it seems to me that the connection of these images, it's not accidental that there should be a furnace appearing at this point. It's, among other things, an attempt to 
melt down um, things that would otherwise be separate into a united reality in order to construct something. And here, presumably, the great furnace is the means by which the metals were melt da- melted down in order to build this great structure. And the threat is, if anyone does not submit to this structure, then they're going to be cast into that fire that melts down those elements. And Israel has been to this point rescued from such fires, whether that's the great fire of the kilns of um, Babel or it's the fires of Egypt, the iron furnace. Now there's a new furnace. And it seems to me that there is a, a an ongoing theme here that may be worth unpacking a bit more. Yeah, I, I like that because it partly highlights something Peter brought up about the way in which the whole ceremony backfires. And the fire backfires in a way, doesn't it? That which is an attempt to melt down will actually refine. In the end, it will highlight the differences between the Hebrews and and the rest of them rather than vice versa. And there is that whole sense in which the whole ceremony backfires. Nebuchadnezzar wants to bring together the nation to get them to acknowledge his greatness and he creates a platform a stage for god to demonstrate his great glory and and so that the whole thing just mm-hmm. goes wrong for nebuchadnezzar doesn't it very good point uh, james I, I wanted to ask you particularly if uh I, there's a discussion about uh, persian and greek loan words in the lists of uh officials and also in lists of musical instruments uh, i wonder if you've thought about that and also is is there uh I've seen a couple of articles that are exploring the uses of burning as an execution method in ancient Mesopotamia. And I wonder if you have any any inside information on that. Um, I mean, I've got various thoughts on all sorts of things, I guess. You'll have to judge the quality of them. Um, I mean, it, it does – we've spoken a little bit about the um, – uh, the Greek words, haven't we, in, in some of this list of instruments. And Alistair, I think, was alluding to the way in which the music um, is meant to bring together. And so that seems um, appropriate. I've I've also wondered about the, the very arrangement of these lists. So you have a gathering of peoples and nations and languages, and so it sounds like you have this... Um, uh, amalgamation of nationalities and at the top of it you have the voice of this this herald this this babylonian head who who proclaims things and then you have six instruments listed and then one of these catch-all categories every, every kind of music and so you have the herald at the head you have then the horn and the pipe and those are words which have semitic roots so they're they're things that would be relatively familiar. And then you have kind of four more Greek-sounding instruments, even to the extent that they've got Greek case endings um, to them, so like a kitros or, um, or a symponia. Uh, these are sort of not classically Aramaic endings. And I wonder if there you've almost got just a little snapshot of the arrangement of the kingdoms so in the mm. kingdoms you have babylon babylon at the top and then you have a twofold kingdom you have medo persia and then you have a fourfold greek empire and then you mm. get this kind of multi this sort of 10 
10-dimensional thing at, at the bottom, almost like a catch-all empire. And I wonder if that's what you've got here, the Herald at the top, two more familiar instruments with Semitic roots um, for Greek, and then this sort of catch-all empire at the bottom of the whole thing. So it's it's replicating the image from the dream, you're saying, that, that fourfold structure. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, if, if it is, it would be another of these ironic details because in Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to defy the image, in a sense, there is, in the arrangement of the um, instruments, a sort of subtle reflection of it. Um, mm. uh, another idea, perhaps a bit more far-fetched, but um, uh, Alistair mentioned the fact that the image would presumably have been overlaid with gold um, rather than like this solid gold thing. It, it feels like it's too big to be just one solid block of gold. And obviously, you could have a real irony here in w what would you make the core of it out of? You know, clay might be quite a logical choice. Um, mm -hmm. we've, we've found sort of metallic uh, overlaid clay images in, in and around Babylon. And um, that could be another ironic detail that sort of clay, the very weakness mm -hmm. of Chapter 2's image may well have underlain this sort of uh, <laughs> uh, an attempt to pave over weakness or uh, with some glorious shiny thing yeah I mean even if you don't have the structure that you're laying out that uh, where the the arrangement of the music kind of follows the arrangement of the different materials in this in the statue back in chapter two you still have a kind of musical empire here just in the in the as you describe the terms being taken from different languages uh, all of those playing together, are forming a yeah a, a united people united nations of music that calls all of the nations that are under Nebuchadnezzar's dominion to bow down to the image. What do you guys think about the image itself? Is it reading too much into it to think it was an image of a person or of Nebuchadnezzar, or is are its dimensions suggesting that it's just this big sort of block, like a, a big cube or, or something? I'd, I'd guess that the the use of the word image would uh, would suggest a human form of some sort. Um, may, maybe that's not the case. I haven't studied out the various uses of that, but I'm, you know, that's the word that's used. I think it's the word they used in chapter two to describe the statue, and you know, the the Hebrew equivalent is the word that's used to uh, as the image of God back in Genesis. So my guess it would be some kind of human form, but um, I guess a um, a couple of the sources I looked at were arguing against the idea that this is Nebuchadnezzar himself being depicted, and it makes sense that it would be something other than Nebuchadnezzar because he's he's presumably present there, although maybe he's just created a gigantic version of himself for everyone to bow down to, and he's he's there uh, overseeing it. Uh, but it seems like he's present there and part of the part of the ceremony, and you know perhaps you have an image of a god. To whom Nebuchadnezzar has some kind of, with whom Nebuchadnezzar has some kind of alliance. So bowing down to the god is a way of showing homage to the king as well. Hmm. I I hadn't thought about it before, but if you did have Nebuchadnezzar and an image of him, you would have an interesting parallel in Revelation in that you've got the, hmm. the beast and in his present an image for the hmm. beast. Hmm. That would be interesting. Should we see some connection between this? and the golden calf some connection probably 
<laughs> do, you, do you have anything further, Alistair, that you're thinking about that? Nothing um, that isn't just in Kuwait ideas. Well, well I guess the, the one connection you could make would be you have obviously a, a an idol in both cases that many people are bowing down to, but you have the, you have people who are refusing to bow. And, and when Moses calls for uh, those to fill their hands with swords, you have the Levites who are filling their hands with the swords and, and executing those who are bowing down to the golden calf. So you have a kind of uh, the, you have a division between those who bow down and those who don't and the defiance. Maybe you have some kind of overtones that the three friends are have some kind of a, a analogous position to the Levites who are faithful to the Lord in the golden calf incident. And it's that's the that's the that's the moment, at least with the, those who fill their hands with the sword are the ones who are uh, later filled. Their hands are filled with priestly ministry. So you have a kind of the, the, the Levites are called apart, set apart by that incident as the uh, uh, as the priestly tribe. So maybe something along those lines. Certainly the final crumbling of the um, statue in chapter two borrows a lot of the vocabulary of the um, mm. uh, where Moses grinds powder the yes. um, uh, the calf. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and point. it's obviously thrown down at the foot of a mountain, um, which is a sort of another connection between the two. I think it's interesting that uh, chapter three, the way that chapter three is written, uh, that uh, were given this impression of complete compliance with the king's orders. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar issues the decree, all of his prefects and governors, and everybody shows up. We know from the previous chapter that there are Jews, at least four of them, that are among those officials. And if we're reading straight through from chapters one and two, we're thinking, what about them? Are they are they part of it? Verse seven suggests that there are no exceptions that everyone's acting in unison. All the peoples, nations, men of every tribe, uh, men of every language fell down and worship the golden image uh, when they hear all the kinds of music that are being played. So it's, we're kind of anticipating from the previous chapter, there's going to be some twist here, which comes in verse eight, when certain Chaldeans come forward and uh, bring accusations against certain Jews. And then uh, are, first of all, that begin that begins to, that, that shatters the, uniformity, the the consensus of verse seven, all the peoples, in fact, not every individual is bowing down, falling down and worshiping the image. And uh, we begin to expect to see uh, the Jews that we've already been introduced to in the book playing some kind of role here. And the Chaldeans are bringing, as the Chaldeans are bringing charges against them. Hmm. A question we could ask is, where is Daniel then? Should we see the final verses of verse of chapter two as presenting his alibi, as it were? Hmm. So he's in a different location. Is that what you're saying? Yep. That then could raise the question of to what extent Nebuchadnezzar had um, anticipated some of this and to what extent he thinks people are aware of the dream. You see, this presumably wouldn't have been publicized widely that, you know, the king has received this um, dream of like a collapsing empire. You know, that, that's not the kind of thing he would want uh, the kingdom to know about a great deal. And so you wonder if there's sort of more more going on than meets the eye to some extent. Um, when the people don't bow down, when the three Jews don't go down, the um, exclamation Nebuchadnezzar makes is quite unusual. It, it's... It's something like, um, is it 
I don't know, is it on purpose? Uh, where is this? This is now um, verse 14. 14. Like, yeah, like, is it intentional, I, I guess, that you're doing this? And you you wonder if somewhere in the background uh, there is the fact that Daniel isn't there, and so Nebuchadnezzar thinks there's no one who who knows the exact details of the dream and no one, therefore, who will understand the full significance of what's going on here and that he might have been even surprised by the presence of Daniel's friends who would have known about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, raises another question of who knows what. I mean, from chapter one, we know as readers that there has been uh, Daniel and his friends have uh, have not been eating the king's food, at least initially when they get to Babylon, they refuse the king's food. Uh, they get permission from their overseer to do that. Is the king aware of that? Is the king aware that there's already this kind of, that's not exactly an act of resistance because they did ask permission uh, to, to, get, to conduct this experiment with the food. But uh, it's even aware that there's that, uh, there's that. All he knows about Daniel, perhaps, is that Daniel is uh, come uh, among the Hebrews and that he has this gift for interpretation and that his God is a God who reveals mysteries. Uh, the idea that this God might be an exclusive God who demands exclusive worship that's that may be something that's completely outside of his uh, outside of his um, yeah he, he he's not aware of that at this point and he becomes aware of it during this episode yeah that then to some extent um, puts the test of chapter three into slightly sharper relief doesn't it initially Daniel and his friends have this issue with the diet and they manufacture a situation where they haven't got to choose between obeying God and obeying man. They come up with this compromise and this sort of control experiment, mm -hmm. um, and they find a way of, of keeping both parties happy. But here, obviously, that is no longer an option. Here, they have to choose whether to obey God or, or man. That option of compromise has, has been taken right. out of the equation. Right. And as you've remarked before, James, this really develops the broader theme of how to be faithful Jews in a situation of exile and under a hostile, idolatrous government. Um, you have these series of different episodes that are developing in their intensity and um, there is, at this point, a focus upon the Jews to the degree that there isn't in the preceding two chapters. Um, in the first chapter, they're looking for some way to escape this requirement, um, which they're able to do fairly quietly. They don't have to come to the attention of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter two, it's Daniel intervening in a situation where he's not the one who's immediately um, the target or the focus of the king's threat, but he comes under it more broadly. And now they're straight in the spotlight. They're the ones that it all comes down to whether they are going to bow or not. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because it's the um, Chaldeans who bring the Jews' refusal to bow to his attention, mm -hmm. which is slightly unusual. You wonder why Nebuchadnezzar hasn't noticed, but then if there are thousands of people there and he's sort of perhaps caught up in the moment, you know, um, then <laughs> perhaps you could overlook something like that. And so you, you wonder, is there tension between the existing ranks of the wise men and the Hebrews? 
have they shown them up and proved mm-hmm. them to be charlatans? You know, that they have the king's uh, attention, they're his um, people, and now these newfound, these these sort of uh, young guns have turned up who can actually do the sort of interpretation they should be able to do. So you can imagine they might not have been very popular. Right. The right. Chaldeans did have their lives saved by Daniel, um, which probably should count for something. Um, <laughs> in the preceding chapter, they were the ones who were the main actors in the initial scene. But another thing that's interesting here, along with that, is the way we're, we're maybe seeing in the absence of Daniel here, a shift in the or movement and development of the narrative towards from Daniel's personal faithfulness, which is very much the focus of chapters one and two. It's Daniel who really leads in um, chapter one. He's the spokesperson. He has these three friends with him, but he speaks on their behalf. In the second chapter, it's Daniel very much by himself, but looking for prayer and support from his companions. And now the friends mm-hmm. are left by themselves and they have to deal with this situation in his absence. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about some of these other ways in which we have situations where disciples or others are left alone without the one who leads them. Um, maybe think about the disciples at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration and the um, child possessed with a demon um, they can't deal with that situation. Or maybe think about Aaron left at the foot of Mount Sinai where Moses is up on the mountain. And now these three are left by themselves and they actually prove faithful and effective in a situation where they do not have their leader with them. Mm. So you'd think, uh, Alistair, you would think that they'd have some gratitude toward Daniel because of that, but you can also, that can flip. I mean, if you're indebted to somebody for your life, that can be a source of gratitude or resentment that you're uh, that that you have that debt. And, and there does seem to be some some uh, personal motivation here that the Chaldeans want to eliminate the Jews from their positions of prominence, uh, and they do it by with this uh, speech in verses eight through twelve. They have an audience with Nebuchadnezzar, and they again <laughs> repeat the same list of instruments. We hear it. We hear it yet again, and the decree is repeated yet again. So you have that uh, again, that kind of comic repetition that's going on. But it's interesting how the the conclusion of it is to focus attention, focus Nebuchadnezzar's attention on the personal defiance of these three toward um, Nebuchadnezzar. They're finally named in verse twelve. And uh, they, they go on to say, these, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have disregarded you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who's been affronted by this. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image which you set up. So there's this emphasis on uh, their defiance, specifically of Nebuchadnezzar's gods, of Nebuchadnezzar's decree, and of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So uh, they're trying to provoke this reaction, and and they are effective in that. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is in rage and uh, decides to carry out the execution. Uh, he's, going to have, he, he's going to summon the three Jews into his presence and then threatens to carry out the execution. But they're, they're very effectively put the, put the point as a personal affront to the king. Hmm. So as James pointed out, you, you, you wonder how Nebuchadnezzar didn't notice these three Jews who were not participating in this rite 
However, he didn't. It's the Chaldeans that bring it bring it to the king's attention. And that, again, we've been talking about how the uh, chapter by chapter, the intensity of the threat and the the, the uh, challenge has been increasing. And within the chapter, you're move, the, the three friends are moving from a situation where they are just privately non-compliant. Somebody sees them doing that, and then it's brought before the king. And so you, that raises the stakes considerably because now, now they're going to have to stand before the king and they're going to have to answer for what was initially something that the king had overlooked. They're going to have to answer for their defiance of the king's order. And that's going to be the real intense test. I mean, it's a test already for them not to, whether or not they're, whether they're going to bow to the to the image or not. Uh, but now, when confronted directly with the king, they're ha- going to have to make some kind of public witness before the king uh, about uh, re- their refusal. And that's you know uh, that's a that's a dynamic of persecution. That's a dynamic of witness. That uh, uh, there are there are times when we're in positions where we can quietly refuse to go along with things. Uh, that's a test, and it takes courage. But the real courage and the real uh, the real test comes. The, the harder test comes when we're standing before authorities uh, who have defied God, and we are forced to defy them in God's name. And that'll be the uh, that'll be the scene that we'll look at uh, at the beginning of the next episode of the podcast. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.